New York City is among a growing number of places working to develop a more inclusive curriculum in schools. That involves ensuring educators are using materials that represent students of different backgrounds. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. The organization Teaching Matters is working with schools in New York City to support its efforts to promote culturally responsive teaching strategies. Lynette Guestafero is Teaching Matters CEO. She joins me now in the studio. Lynette, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So give us some background. What is Teaching Matters? So Teaching Matters is a nonprofit organization that is focused on ensuring that all kids, no matter what zip code they're born in, um, have equitable access to great teaching. Uh, and you know, the work that we do is to partner with schools and we bring you know, excellent educators who can work with teachers in some of the higher needs schools to really work around curriculum and pedagogy that will advance kids' learning. And um, you know, in many cases in some of our higher needs schools, we have, uh, teacher, we have more new teachers. Um, and so there's work to be done sometimes in really helping teachers hit the ground running um, in, in certain areas of, of New York. What would you say are the greatest barriers to equitable access? Well, I mean, one significant one, I believe, is, you know, resources. I mean, we look at the fact that our education system is funded through property taxes, and that already from there sets up a kind of unusual system in, in you know, kind of developed countries that based on your income, you're, you're in a school system that's funded based on property values of, of a community. So we're set up already... With a, with a host of challenges just from that perspective. So what kinds of programs do you have? So our programs are focused on really improving the quality of teaching. And um, so we have a few different offerings. And we, you know, we focus first and foremost on developing teachers in core content. So we have a program that really develops teachers in teaching early reading, kindergarten, first, and second grade, a program that advances teachers in the teaching of mathematics and, and literacy, and you know, new, a, new, a, a newer offering, which is really helping teachers um, to kind of move into what is what we call culturally responsive um, education. Right. What is that exactly? Yes. Yeah, culturally no, I, responsive education. So it's funny. I, 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 I like to talk about culturally responsive education, uh, especially when I'm talking to experienced educators and urban educators who are committed to serving kids who have had uh, come from marginalized communities. That they're, it's, For me, so culturally responsive education is about creating a learning environment where kids um, have more agency, where you're actually using their cultures as kind of an asset to the instruction. It also asks teachers and students to become more cognizant of their the biases that they might bring and an understanding that learning and culture are actually quite tied. And so how you learn and think is affected by cult- cultural norms. And so it's developing teachers kind of awareness of things that they may be bringing into the classroom potentially that could be helping or, or, or helping or, or holding kids back. And I would imagine in many cases unknowingly doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's and I think one important, you know, we've been taught, you know, in our society, the worst thing you could say to a person oh, is you're a racist, right? Like it, it's a trigger. But the reality is, is bias is a human condition. It's it's a normal. Uh, it's a it's a br- the brain taking shortcuts based on their patterns of, of their of their experiences, and so it's asking people to be conscious of the experience that they come to the to the classroom with and how they may be taking some shortcuts in their thinking, and um, and understanding that it's 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 a given that you have bias. The the key is really trying to be aware of it 
and um, and be conscious of it. And, and concepts of privilege, for example, which I think sometimes, you know, can really trigger people like privilege, like I grew up poor, like what, you know, what's my privilege? Well, you know, you, it's hard. The thing about privilege is when you have it, you barely see it. But when mm-hmm. you don't have it, you're hyper aware of it. And I do sometimes find that people uh, who are aware of ways in which they didn't have economic privilege can be hyper aware of that, and they they they're cognizant of it. And so the idea, and 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 they might have friends who didn't have that, and they experience a disconnect. This person does not even realize what they what they you know what they've brought to the table. Well, race is is a place where there's a lot of privilege for some people and not others, and a lot of people don't even realize on a day to day basis things that are possible for them that or experiences that they haven't had. And I think there's been a lot of consciousness. Um, raised in the last few years. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of that. And the question I think sometimes is like, well, how important that is to the classroom? You know, why should we, you know, we're supposed to be teaching kids math and science and reading. So why does this come in? And it's becoming more important because our student population is increasingly diverse. It's, you know, majority of kids of color in the United States in public schools. And we have a a teaching population that's 80% white. And there are disconnects um, that have can hamper kids learning there are preconceived notions they've done these um for example i'll give you one example it kind of blows people away they've done like eye tracking studies of uh, preschool teachers of four-year-olds and watched where um, if kids are acting you know maybe moving quickly or how they're responding and where teachers eyes go to and they've shown that sort of white preschool teachers were really folk you know their eyes were going quickly, quickly to, 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 to young black boys in a way that from the data you could see there was a bias. A, a white student, if you look at video, there would be white, a, a little white girl doing almost the exact same thing. Eyes don't go to her, but eyes went to this. And so this idea that like, are those teachers biased or, or, or are those teachers trying to do something bad to their children? No, but they are, um, they have unconscious bias to their kids. Yeah, so how do you make a teacher aware of that risk, that possibility that they could be doing that? So there's different ways, but we can look, you know, in, in terms of thinking about your curricula, there there is your own personal work, you know, understanding your mindsets, your expectations for kids, you know, having high expectations for all kids and um, not saying, oh, my kids can't do homework or I, uh, you know, um, you know, the, that all kids can you know work at a high level. Some kids may need additional supports, but that you have this expectation that you push through. The other is the curriculum that you're teaching and the books that you're reading, and that there's an attempt to have kids learn history that reflects their their history as well. And um, and the other piece is pedagogical, so teaching strategies. So one little you know trick we do with teachers is uh, we do a little tracking. So just tracking on your calling patterns and sort of looking at, you know, who l- tracking data. One day we do some observations and kind of just look at your natural calling patterns and analyze, do you see any um, differences? And inevitably you will, um, even from the perspective of boys versus girls. I mean, I grew up in classrooms where I, I experienced as a young girl the difference between teachers' calling patterns on boys and girls. And I remember it quite affecting me as a kid. And I think that, you know, and, and that's, it's natural. So so what are some techniques that teachers can do to make sure that they are kind of equitably calling on kids? Or like, the, for example, they're, they're calling on kids that may, or, or engaging kids that are not got their hands up, or um, kids that may not be engaging in the instruction. How do you ensure that you're really, you know, engaging all kids and that you're, you know, it could be that there are certain kids that you like, there's certain kids you know are going to know the answer 
this you you have to work on um, making sure that all kids feel sort of equally seen in a classroom, and that's can be hard to do. So it's a good activity to just you know monitor and track. Who am I calling on? Let me look at the data. Okay, I'm doing great. I'm calling everybody fairly equally. No, it turns out that I call on these four kids all the time. I didn't even realize I was doing that. So it's just that's one simple example um, of just a kind of a teacher move, you know, and a, a simple thing. And this is again. One of the things I think is important for teachers to know is that culturally responsive and sustaining education is not an entirely new concept. I think there are some things that we have good, great educators have been doing for a very long time, including engaging kids in, you know, learning that reflects their their histories. I mean, I did that as a teacher. The thing that is new is spending more time reflecting on your own biases and in the instruction and being much more conscious about it. And really working hard to to to, identi- to to develop relationships with kids and know those kids and kind of know what they're bringing to the table to find ways to then engage them in the instruction. And I think it's a win-win because, I th- you know, the whole goal, you know, you want the kids to write a persuasive essay, right, and learn how to do it. Well, when they're writing something persuasive on something that really matters to them, you get to go faster. If I'm trying to teach kids, you know, mathematical thinking, and, you know, let's I'll give you an example. Um when a favorite activity, right? Like, you know, pick your favorite country that you're going to go on a trip to and plan your budget. Well, in New York, we have 100,000 kids in homeless shelters and doubled up. Mm -hmm. So how does that assignment land on those kids, right? So something that might be more sort of culturally responsive would be to think about a different uh, kind of budgeting exercise. For example, um, let's let's develop a sample budget for a family, identify for a month. Um, and now let's look at a couple different zip codes and find out what the average wage is. Okay, so what do families in this scope, can they afford in their budget? And what can this family afford? And what choices does this family have to make? The math skills in this are quite similar, but one is um, good for all kids, mm-hmm. right? For some kids, it might be building some social conscious and awareness. And for other kids, it reflects their experience. And they don't have to go through, you know, planning their trip to Scotland where they're like, really? Like, uh, <laughs> I, 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 this is, you know, this is a difficult experience for a child. Who's so there's a takeaway for everyone in that classroom, yeah, exactly. regardless of socioeconomic status. And so it shifts. It's like shifting. And, and a, one piece of culture responsive education really is teaching, you know, teaching kids the value of, the benefit of diverse perspectives and not a one sort of one paradigm. And I personally think that this kind of learning is what is required now in the workforce anyway. You know, we know that companies that are really smart about um, bringing diversity in, the research shows that companies that can handle the uh, diverse perspectives, diverse, you know, neuro perspectives, diverse folks, the the people in that organization are likely to see a wider range of opportunities and bring more experiences to the table that that and the 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 research shows that those companies actually make more money um and there's a reason for that because you know they're able to see opportunities that other organizations can't see and i think it's the, so if you if you develop that as a positive value system um, in school, and it translates, I think, into the kinds of leadership that we're going to need, that we already need in, in you know, the workforce today. So this approach to education is setting young people up for future success Absolutely. in the workforce. As, and and as, as our society is increasingly diverse, as I said, like for the first time in history, we have, you know, a, a higher proportion of kids in public school, not just in New York, like nationally of color. So you know, the, if if we have a, a, a story or a narrative of history that really speaks to the, you know, kind of a 
historical white dominant perspective on history, there's a f- there are kids that have you know are are going to be feeling pretty left out of that, and there's no reason to because they were we're all part of the history. So it's a, it's and it's actually supportive of teaching kids important critical thinking and synthesis skills to say, look, there's a couple different perspectives on this. And how do we synthesize it? That's actually just good education for everybody versus sort of the didactic, like this is the facts, this is what we learned. And so what's I think what's important is for teachers to know that some of this is just good old, like progressive instruction. How do you engage kids? How do you have them construct learning? How do you um, give them agency in learning, uh, having some decisions in how they're learning and what they're learning. And some of it is truly new. Where And it was new for me, too, to really, because I did that as a teacher. You know, I had kids, I was very cognizant that we were reading books that reflected my kids. I think I think teachers in urban education, they, they run the gamut. But I know a lot of educators, and this is sort of the audience I want to talk to, like, you know, you've been doing this work for a long time, and you're really committed to the kids, and you have thought about this. But there is something new here, and it is really being conscious of what you don't know, and actually it's not a case that you can learn it all. It's being cognizant that you don't have the full experience set. So how do you tap into your kids to really uh, close that gap? And and by doing that, empower them to inform the curriculum. And this is not throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater. I mean, there's standards kids have to learn. But if they have to learn the standards, they have to learn the math, they have to learn the science, but they're going to learn it faster if you can connect it. And this is, this again, is old news. Kids learn faster when they can engage their learning to something that they have prior knowledge on or can understand that understand or it connects to their real lives. So some of this is what we already know. The difference is, is being really conscious about how race has played such a huge role in our history in a way that most of us really haven't truly unpacked. So do you work with schools and teachers to analyze the curriculum and rejigger it? Yes. So, so one, so we have we have a, a program called it's culturally responsive pedagogical strategies at teaching matters, and so uh, that's one um, unit. We have another one which focuses on f- uh, helping a school to refine their curricula. So it's co- looking at culturally responsive curricula. You know, and that would be looking at the texts that you're teaching um, and and examining what are the messages of these texts, who are in these texts, and other ways that you can incorporate multiple, you know, different texts that could provide a, a broader range of experience. Um, you know, and teachers are re- kind of, I'm finding, we're finding teachers like are, are in the last year are starting to really rev up and get excited about this work. What's an example of a lesson that you help to adjust? Well, I'll give you an example. One, there, you know, there we had uh, assignments where kids were writing to genre. They're writing, you know, persuasive writing. They're writing about, um, you know, writing articles. What, and it was in response to very specific historical texts, and the texts that they were writing about were a little bit, you know, they were they were was very one dimensional. And so the 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 work changed to make sure that the the that there were multiple perspectives in the historical texts that the kids were reading. And therefore, the essay had to really um, write it from a, a multiple perspective vantage point. I know that's a complicated example, but it was it's just sometimes bringing more uh, it's making sure that you look at the kids in the room and say, is there history here that reflects it's a sort of they talk about, um, you know, uh, mirrors and windows. So you want to have a window to the world. Kids should learn about life beyond their experience. But there also have to be mirrors that, in learning, reflect what they know. And if you can't, if you don't do that, then you, if kids can't first understand themselves and their own identities, it's hard for them to really go deep in understanding others or or just other perspectives. 
What about the books that are on the shelves in school libraries? Are they diverse enough? Are they meeting these needs that you're talking about? So there was a study um, done, I think it was two years ago, where they were, and actually publishers have been looking uh, very closely at you know the text that they're uh, selling to schools and what schools are buying, and. They are. They have been predominantly texts written by white authors about white stories. And so, you know, and there always are those texts, those seminal texts that bring in others' experiences. But, you know, everybody knows those texts. And so what we've seen both in the publishing industry in the last two years is a big uptick in more um, in in authors of color writing. And when you bring in different authors, they're just bringing in different experiences. So there's actually been more texts available to schools. We have this one school, um, MS88, and they did this big reorg of their library and really worked on bringing in more. And they they actually measured that their um, the the percentage of books that went in circulation like jumped twofold because you know kids were going in and seeing things that appealed to them. And so, you know, again, a lot of this is about engaging kids in their instructions, understanding who they are, and and empowering them in ways in their instruction. And I always say some of this is old. Some of this is you know, progressive instruction, how how you engage kids in their learning in a, in a way that it's not just all didactic. I, you know, here's the facts. This is what you have to learn. This is what you have to regurgitate. We're constructing knowledge. The research shows that kids have to build knowledge. Well, in constructing knowledge, whose knowledge are you constructing? You've got to bring their experience and voices. And when you do, you, in my view, is again, it's a win-win. They just, I think they learn faster and they learn with more passion and, and more engagement. And so, you know, and it doesn't have to be a complete overhaul. It can be, there can be tweaks to this. Um, and, and tweak is maybe not the right word, but it, for someone who's in the right direction from the perspective of their pedagogy, then I don't think this is a huge change. If someone has, is really like, here's, I teach my math content. It's, this is all I teach. Like, you have to learn this and this is how we do it. They have, they have to reform how they think about teaching in, in a way that is um, helping kids really build knowledge, you know. I think back to my high school English class and how much time we focused on Shakespeare. But does it have to be Shakespeare? Can we analyze someone else, someone more diverse? We can. And and do you have to do you have to throw out Shakespeare or can you just can you bring in you're going to make there's no question you have to make some choices. So maybe Shakespeare's going out and someone else is coming in. But I argue that you know you could do Shakespeare but th- decide what you're going to do. You don't have to throw out Shakespeare. You may be throwing something out like Shakespeare. It's important that kids are getting different perspectives. And again, I would talk about mirrors and windows. So what are the important windows that to to look at on both history and um and the future and what are some mirrors that the kids can see their families' histories and lives reflected and stories which are a part of the American story that has been significantly undertold, bring it into the curriculum. So what specifically is going on here in New York City public schools to address this issue? Well, we know that, you know, um, so uh, Chancellor Carranza had made this uh, kind of a, they initially started with, I think, a lot of development around teachers where they went through some work around understanding their own biases and mindsets. There was some work done centrally. I think what we are doing is taking it to the classroom. So once a faculty has done some work around recognize, like examining some of their um, mindsets, looking at, for example, who's getting expelled, who's getting um, expelled, who's getting sent to the principal's office. If it's if you have real disproportionate situation here, 
Well, you have to do something about it. It's not okay. You can't just say, okay, you know, this is just how the, this is how it goes. No. Like, what can you, how can you reshape your environment that that is just not the outcome? So, so one of the things we're doing is helping schools really look at their data um, to understand who's in your school and what kids, how are they doing and, and what might be some of the reasons unpacking that and then going and working with teachers in the classroom to say, let's look at the curricula, let's look at some teaching strategies and let's make some goals to make some adjustments. And it's not about going 180 miles an hour. You get a lot from saying, oh, wait, these sh- shifts to my pedagogy have this change. These shifts to my curriculum, one unit that I'm going to modify, is that's a learning experience for teachers that they can then bring to the to the rest. But I think we have to get into the classroom. You know, I think we've done uh, work on essentially again developing educators and principals around mindset for teachers. I think teachers are super practical and they want to get it. You know, if they're going to learn something, it has to be applied to their classrooms. And so to me, that's the next step. And that's where teaching matters is working to partner with schools to to revise some of those units and, and teaching strategies. But here in New York City, culturally responsive education is not just something that's a recommendation. It's now actually something that is moving forward. It's a requirement. It's a requirement. And it's actually from New York State. This is New York State has a culturally responsive um, framework. And it lays out like, what are the major tenets of what this will look like? And I say, you know, I tell teachers, go look at that framework. A good six of those things are things we sh- you should have always been doing, and they're, I-, I call them good teaching. And then there are a few things which you know may be new for, for folks, like really being conscious of bringing in diverse perspectives in, in a way that they hadn't been before, examining themselves. And I think also for the principal, being really cognizant of the resources in a school and how kids are doing and saying, all right, if I have a group of kids who are disproportionately not doing well, and something's going on, then how am I allocating resources to make those kids feel belong, that they belong to this school? If kids don't feel like they belong in a school, they don't learn. And I think that's half the battle. I, I, I won't say the district, but there's this phenomenal district. They did some analysis of their data, and they realized that they had a number of kids who were you know, really high absenteeism rates. And turned out a lot of these kids were also in self-contained um, environments were in special education, and it turns out a lot of them also were coming from homeless shelters. And so their sense, they came to school and they were just kind of out of sorts. They did, And they came up with this really brilliant strategy of giving the kids two weeks pizza party where they got to invite who, so the kids, the kids got to select their friends for lunch for two weeks and they got to dish out the pizza. Well, that was not a non-pedagogical strategy. That was a social-emotional strategy of, of giving these kids a little social capital in a building, helping them feel like they belong. And they jumped their attendance rates. It's a really cool story. And and how did that happen? It was looking at data on and looking at it racially, looking at it, um, you know, uh, breaking it down and saying, like, who's succeeding, not succeeding? And let's get under the hood of to why. You know, and I do think some of this starts with, in that classroom, we're talking about bringing diverse perspectives. It's like, who in my class feels like they belong here? And am I connecting with them first and foremost? And then how can I adjust uh, some of the topics we're learning so that kids feel that this body of knowledge we're learning to, they belong to? Now, we know kids are, you know, a lot of kids, like lots of kids think school is boring. This is a challenge even for my own son. You know, Hmm. he's, uh, but, but teachers can do more. And if a teacher is totally fixed on like, here's the 10 standards that I have to teach this child. And it's all about me and my teaching of math and not about what relationships am I forming with my classroom so my kids can connect to this 
um, this this content and understand its purpose and that it is purposeful and that I can then use it potentially to help my community. You know, math could help me help my community, right? That's a different way to get kids engaged in. And I, I say it's a win-win. If you can get that, then I think you can start to really teach them anything, right? And and that's what I think that's what great teachers have always done. So my message to teachers that have been in the work for a while and might be questioning some of this is to say, you know what? Give it a try. Um, you know, if it works for the kids, you know it works. it's going to work for you. But as you mentioned earlier, there is an elephant in the room. There are critics who say, you know what? Schools have limited resources. They shouldn't focus on this. They should focus on math, science, and not cultural bias. Right. And and again, I would just go back and say, I taught the, the standards better when I started from what will give my kids agency in the learning and what will help them connect math and science to things that they care about. And once I can do that, then I can start to really push them in terms of, and the word I, you know, you're not supposed to say push. I pushed. I was a pusher. I had, you know, I taught in a classroom where I think 90, 90% of my students were, were kids of color. And I, I had very high expectations of students. I used, you know, my mental model was my fifth grade gifted experience, and I brought it to my fourth grade. But how did I do that? You know, I got those kids engaged in things that really mattered to them, and then I really pushed them on the writing, on the speaking, on the editing. Uh, you know, like so. I think you can get really rigorous when you get kids engaged, and this is a, a strategy for empowerment and engagement. So that's the part I'm like, that's not new. That's old. What's new is that I I don't know if I thought so explicit. I thought I had all the answers. Like I was like, I know exactly what my kids need to learn to be engaged, even from the perspective of. Um, race, you know, but but in in retrospect, I could have been more mindful of my experience and my kids' experience, and a little more checking in with them around their what 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 they brought to the table, what what their experiences were, and tied it into the curriculum, you know, in ways that I I just didn't think to do, and so it's 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 helpful. I think we're I think everyone's on a journey in learning now about. And um, and again, I don't want to. One important thing I think one important critique is. You know, teaching is a full load. And the more, you know, we're always putting new things on teachers and expecting them to learn the next thing. And there's a lot of fad. And I say, start with what you believe and what you know works. And if you believe that engaging kids in instruction works, which, come on, you know, like, you know that, then start from that place about what is going to, who are the kids in front of you? And how might you tap into their experiences to be an asset in connecting to the topic at hand? And some people will say, oh, I can see you doing it in social studies, but how do you do it in mathematics? I'm like, mathematics is the easiest place to do it because, you know, you can apply math to anything. And so why don't you apply it to something the kids actually care about? And so I feel like math is actually, those math, math teachers are the first people to start with this as far as I'm concerned. Let me ask you this question. When you think back to your college days, how much of this was communicated to you even before you walked out of school to become a teacher? So, I mean, so I think my experience was atypical in the sense that, um, you know, I, my, I was, I, I took a number of classes in black political theory and I, I, I think I, I not I have some work to do but I came I had some conscious building that happened to me in college but I sought out those courses and I'll tell you something one of the reasons I think I sought them out is my own experience in this country my parents were were immigrants and I did have that experience 
of feeling sometimes out of the mainstream. And so I did look for those ways of understanding, you know, non-dominant culture. Um, so if that's not, and I, I think a lot of teachers, urban teachers kind of have that because that's why they're attracted to, you know, whether they're from the community or from they're from outside the community, they, they're, they're working with a group of kids that have often been marginalized and families that have been marginalized. And so why are you teaching there? You, you, you hopefully you're a little bit about social change. I mean, you come to the table with that in the first place. But if you, if that wasn't your experience and that's not why you're in education, you know, you, you just, you love math and you want, and you want these kids to learn math. Great. Absolutely. But um, you do need to do some work to understand who's in front of you, who are their families, have you walked the community that you're in? Your organization, Teaching Matters, is set to give a $25,000 award to a public school within a 100-mile radius of New York City that demonstrates excellence in advancing educational equity. How can schools apply? How do you decide who gets that money? So uh, so, so, teach, so, come to the Teaching Matters website. It's www.teachingmatters.org. You can download the prize um, application. There is a rubric which identifies uh, in five areas, like... Uh, sort of varied what does a, a, a school that is doing this work well look like you know and in assessing yourselves identify where you're where you're really identify two things identify what you're doing well identify areas you're trying to improve and if you've got any practices right now that you think are exciting and interesting and you want to share submit the application submit the application the website is open now um, the award will be announced uh, in in the summer and, you know, this is, a, by the way, this is a word we've done for a number of years. And it's all, the word has always been focused on a school that is truly supporting its teaching staff. We call it the Roden Prize for Schools Where Teaching Matters. And this year we've reemphasized the work of equity because so many schools are grappling with it. And so the other great thing about this prize is that we then share the practices. So we get hundreds of schools submitting. And then we can share some of the, the best practices that schools are doing. And then one, you know, one school gets the $25,000 prize. And then that money is meant to be used to continue the work. So this is $25,000 to continue the good work you're doing. Lynette, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much. Lynette Guestafiro is CEO of Teaching Matters. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening.